Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, June the 22nd, 2023. Uh, sometimes books come across my desk that uh, make complete sense in terms of the synergies between the author and the message and the title. And sometimes books suggest to me uh, questions about what a book is saying and what the author uh, is trying to say and who exactly they are. That is certainly the case with the book that we're talking about today. Uh, this book has a wonderful title, Rich White Men, What It Takes to Uproot the Old Boys Club and Transform America. Um, comes with a, a foreword from Robin D'Angelo, a uh, very well-known radical American. Uh, and one would have expected a book like this, I think, to be authored by somebody formerly on the left, perhaps even a socialist, someone who wants to raise taxes. But the author of the book, uh, Garrett Nyman, my guest today, describes himself as a serial nonprofit entrepreneur. And uh, it seems to me that the message in the book about rich white men and the idea of being an entrepreneur might not quite add up, although I'm sure they do. Garrett is joining me from Washington, D.C. Garrett, before we get to the message in the book, tell me uh, about yourself. What exactly does being a serial non-profit uh, entrepreneur mean? Absolutely. So I can share a little bit about my background. I grew up in Orange County, California, white affluent suburb uh, south of Los Angeles. That was my initial uh, upbringing childhood. And I went to college at Stanford. And it was there that I really became focused on trying to make a, a difference through social change. And at Stanford, we're very much taught and encouraged to look at entrepreneurship and social entrepreneurship as a as a pathway to social change. And so out of college, I started a nonprofit from my dorm room with my classmate, Jessica Perez, called College Spring, helping low-income students of color in America prepare for the SATs in college and become the first in their families to go to college. And then more recently, as I, I took a turn to look at the issues in a more systemic way, I uh, also was a co-founder of Liberation Ventures, which is a Black-led philanthropic fund focused on building momentum and power toward federal reparations for Black Americans. So when I say serial nonprofit entrepreneur, I, I simply mean that I, I was a founder of those two organizations. Most um, people, it would seem to me, Garrett, who observe the aristocratic nature of contemporary America, and we've done many shows on this, uh, the America of what you call rich white men are also opposed to capitalism. Are you against capitalism? Do you want to do away with American capitalism? Is that the core of the problem? One of the things that occurs to me about people who call themselves serial nonprofit entrepreneurs is in an odd kind of way, they're actually in favor of capitalism. It's, it's a really good question. And it's something that I'm asked often, uh, given the work that I do. And in particular, given that a core thrust of this book is an argument that 
wealth inequality in the United States is way too high, you know, and, you know, as, as you know, you know, what, what really makes a system capitalist or socialist is who owns the means of production. It doesn't necessarily have all that much to do with how high the wealth inequality is in that society, that there's many capitalist societies that have different levels of inequality. And, you know, so I, I actually see, see it both ways in a way, in the sense that I believe there's a lot of value in reforming capitalism and constraining capitalism in ways that has a more manageable, uh, less extreme version of wealth inequality. And I also have empathy and compassion for those who have basically told me something along the lines of, well, you know, we've had this version of racial monopoly capitalism for 400 years. And throughout that entire time, it has never enabled my community to get it to get my needs met. And therefore, I want to experiment with new approaches, you know, whether it's cooperatives or democratic socialism or community land trusts or growing your own food, that there's all these different experiments that are happening. And I think that I actually want to nurture both, that I believe that America has the resources and pluralism to reform capitalism in ways that work better for its people. Uh, But I also believe that we should encourage that kind of experimentation that a a cooperative entrepreneur or, you know, someone who's growing their own food on their own land. Uh, that's an entrepreneur and an innovator, just like many other entrepreneurs and innovators in this country. So why not celebrate that instead of condemning that as anti-American? That that reply suggests to me that in, in, in a rather long-winded way, you're, you're in favor of capitalism. Uh, so how, Garrett, and what do you argue in the book, in Rich White Men, what it takes to uproot the old boys club? How do we take what you, I think, rightly observe is the, we- the wealth of rich white men, the economic wealth, perhaps the cultural wealth, and, and redistribute it? So absolutely. So and, and to be clear, I mean, I, I really don't want to to make an argument that in any absolute sense that one economic system is better than, than another, that I, I honestly believe that both 20th century capitalism and 20th century socialism have a lot of weaknesses and really came up short and important ways. And, and to me, it's less about, you know, what is the umbrella label of the system and more about is the system structured in ways that meet the needs of, of all its people and, have checks and balances on wealth and power and so forth in ways that are appropriate. And so, you know, when I think about that for this work, you know, that, you know, I think there's a, a version of reforming capitalism that looks like a much primarily a much more progressive uh, tax policy that uh, Emmanuel Saez and Gabriel Zuckman uh, mm-hmm. out of California have really looked at this issue of like, what is the, what is the tax structure that would actually maximize federal revenue? And uh, that's one version of thinking about what. Right. And, uh, and um, Zuckman is, was on the show. He's an economist at uh, UC Berkeley, often compared to Piketty. So, so, so that's really my point, Garrett. If, if you take the, the Zuckman line, you just radically increase taxes. And that does away with rich white American men. Isn't that? really 
the simplest way of doing it? It's it's certainly the simplest way to doing it, but I also I also am a believer that it's not necessarily the case that that reducing wealth inequality would necessarily address all of a country's ills or all of the planet's ills. So like for example, you know, it's very much the case in America that even though there's been a whole bunch of different versions of economic policies including some of which are progressive economic policies that the typical black black american in the united states still has a median wealth of approximately zero you know that's just over zero is the median and there's very few black americans who accumulate any degree of significant wealth in this country and so you know a lot of that has to do with historical factors, uh, you know, going, you know, to slavery and Jim Crow and so forth that prevented black people from having access to the wealth building opportunities that some white Americans were able to have access to. And so, you know, when I look at issues like the racial wealth gap uh, and the racial wealth gap, how it perpetuates uh, stereotypes that uh, negative stereotypes about black Americans that it wouldn't necessarily be the case that just a more progressive tax system uh, would eliminate those stereotypes or give Black Americans the opportunity to to thrive in this country. So what you're saying then is to, and I'm borrowing the subtitle of the book, what it would take to uproot the old boys club, the old boys club of rich white men in America, would go beyond the traditional New Deal politics or the the kinds of more aggressive fiscal regimes that people like Zuckman and Piketty are suggesting. It, it requires what? Cultural change? What needs to happen, Garrett? Yeah, that it's certainly a piece of its cultural change. And I, I think the way I think about it is, you know, that if we were to implement a, a Zuckman type proposal or a New Deal type proposal in terms of progressive taxation, we would still have a country where where rich white men have uh, a near monopoly on power in this country. They would just be less rich and less powerful. So that's certainly a step in the right direction. But why? It, I mean, you, you keep on saying that, but 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 w- wouldn't everything change? I mean, if you had 70, 80, 90 percent taxation on millionaires and billionaires, if money was redistributed, if uh, if 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 colleges were opened up, if, if, if education was invested in, wouldn't that change everything? It would, it would certainly move the needle. I think what, what comes that doesn't up, sound very encouraging, just moving the needle, Garrett. It would move the needle substantially. But I think, I think the reason it doesn't get us all the way there in my view is, so this is a concept I talk about in the book called compounding unearned advantage, uh, which is the idea that seemingly small identity based, advantages when they show up at key moments in people's lives, they change trajectories. So I give the example of how in second grade that we had an exam to determine whether we would be included in the gifted and talented program. And I actually didn't get the required test scores necessary to be eligible for that program. Uh, But there was a school district workaround where uh, my teacher was able to advocate on my behalf, submit a portfolio to the school system uh, that led to me being labeled gifted. And, you know, that at the time, I think I thought of that just as good luck or righting a wrong. 
you know, but in retrospect, I think there's more complexity to it, that there's all this evidence now that white teachers believe their white students are higher potential on average. There's studies that have shown that parents Google more often, is my son gifted than is my daughter gifted? There's evidence that teachers in affluent communities have more available time to advocate for students in ways like my teacher did, or parents uh, in affluent homes have a greater ability to advocate for their children. So there's all these ways where maybe the seemingly subtle advantages I had enabled me to access this opportunity that had a snowball effect where I was in the the courses with the smallest classes and the best teachers. And then I was in AP courses, which were a prerequisite for being admitted to Stanford, which opened more and more opportunities. So there's there's something about the fact that when we have a society that even if there's very subtle biases, that there's this compound effect that happens. And, and certainly some of that is socioeconomic and could be addressed by a different tax system. But there's ways that those seemingly subtle biases related to race, gender, and other markers would continue to perpetuate the inequalities we have in our society if we're not intentional about addressing them directly and explicitly. So if we are to be, uh, and I'm, I'm using your language here, uh, Garrett, intentional, are, are you calling them for a, a kind of cultural revolution? Mao tried that in the 1960s. It didn't seem to be enormously successful. H how are you going to change the, the architecture, the cultural architecture of America so that white men don't have these natural advantages? So I think, I think the way I think about it is a lot of it has to do with how, how we treat people who are further down the rungs in American society that I think a lot of why there's so much class anxiety, status anxiety in the United States is because inequality is so high. You know, that if you're somebody who goes to an elite university, you know, you can become a billionaire. Whereas if you go to a state university, uh, you might not get a living wage, even if you graduate from that institution uh, these days, you know, so when inequality is very extreme, you know, my understanding of what happens is that people really cling on to the, the, the rung of the ladder that they're on and really don't want to fall, you know, so there's a lot of fear, you know, at the higher end about what happens to me in this society, if I fall down a rung or two or several rungs. And so, there's there's something about what is how do we treat the the people at the bottom of our society you know what you know in the christian context how do we how do we treat the least among us in order to uh help alleviate some of those fears that people who are at the top of the hierarchy frankly rightly have to a degree that you know if we just flip the structure around and uh you know put different people on top uh that's not that's not a world that that white men want to live in uh, rightfully. So what does it look like for us to actually transform that the overall architecture of the system in a way that that lowers the ceiling a lot, but also raises the floor in ways that uh, enable people to be less anxious, frankly, about falling a rung or two down the ladder. But everyone's anxious, Dan, uh, uh, Garrett, these days. Um, in fact, seems one of the things driving the, the Trump-DeSantis bandwagon is the anxiety 
not just the white working class, but the white middle and upper classes. So if anything, uh, the, the Trump DeSantis crowd listening to you, you would be uh, maximizing their anxiety and justifying everything they're saying. How, how is this going to work? I, I don't understand. Are you going to say, uh, is it going to be illegal to be a rich white man? So I think the the way I think about this is that there's there's a handful of major policies that we could implement that would really move us much closer. I, I don't want to say that, you know, the idea of a perfectly level society is is feasible. The amount it's of not even attractive, is it? I mean, most political philosophers from Machiavelli to the Tocqueville, even to modern progressives like John Rawls, they're not in favor of absolute equality. That's a dystopia, isn't it? I, I think you could potentially look at it that way. I think that there is a lot of buy-in to the concept of equal opportunity. And, and I think part of the disconnect is that there's a notion among the elite in America that we're a lot closer to having equal opportunity than we actually are. And then it's also the case that the way we treat those who have the least opportunity and the least success is barbaric. So you talk then about these handful of concrete policies. T tell me about some of them. I know you're uh, sympathetic to the idea of reparations. You tweeted in California that um, stolen lands equal stolen dreams, stolen futures and stolen generational wealth. Uh, so you're you, you've been very public on this idea of, of reparations. Is that one of the concrete policies that you're in favor of? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a there's a few structural policies that I think would make a big difference. I think one is uh, really that set of uh, Saya Zuckman, FDR style uh, progressive taxation, you know, looking at uh, much higher capital gains rates, high, much more progressive tax system, looking at wealth taxes or some other way of, of leveling the playing field that way. So that's one piece, you know, and, and part of that piece includes anti-monopoly policies that I, I believe fundamentally, you know, any policies that dramatically favor the rich, whether we're talking about individuals or, or corporations are actually uh, you know, reflect a society that actually does redistribution upward, uh, which is how the system generally works in America versus the other way around. So the, the anti-monopoly policies and progressive taxation are hugely important. That's one piece. A, a second piece related to the floor is this notion that Dr. King emphasized in the 60s. It was one of his uh, big aspirations before he was murdered was this notion of uh, abolishing poverty. And abolishing poverty is different than, you know, reducing poverty or fighting, fighting poverty or whatever it may be that he was really looking at, you know, a guaranteed income and or a guaranteed jobs program that would really make poverty obsolete uh, in America. And that's that's something that, you know, we do have the resources in this country to take on, you know, but then, you know, as I was alluding to earlier, you know, that you know, a policy like a guaranteed income or guaranteed jobs program doesn't necessarily take into account, you know, the vast disparities in intergenerational wealth. And in a capitalist system, if you start life with more capital, uh, you're going to have an advantage. And if if it were ever so 
extremely equalized such that that wasn't the case, it would no longer be capitalism. So as long as, you know, as long as we stand behind a capitalist system, you know, looking at things like the racial wealth gap uh, is really important if we're interested in equal opportunity. So, you know, if we took those three, those three steps, which are very, very clear, concrete uh, redistribution. Well, uh, that, but one of the things you threw in there, Garrett, is guaranteed minimum, a guarantee, you didn't even talk about a guaranteed minimum income. You talked about a guaranteed income and making poverty essentially, I don't know whether you'd call it illegal or doing away. And you said the state has the resources. I'm not sure all economists would agree. I think most economists actually would be rather skeptical of that. And in political terms, that's inconceivable. I mean, not even AOC would goes anywhere near that. I mean, in political terms, you've got to be realistic here. How's that going to work? Are we going to have barricades, a violent revolution? So I, I think the, the question of, of what's realistic in the short term is not necessarily the same as what's realistic in the long term. You know, there was a point in American history where abolishing slavery was unimaginable or abolishing Jim Crow was unimaginable. And eventually over time across generations, those uh, those structures were abolished. And and poverty can be one of those uh, that, uh, you know, one of the things that I point out about how this could happen, at least at a municipal scale, if not a national scale, is, you know, in San Francisco, for example, you know, Larry Page, founder of Google, has about $100 billion. Larry Page could fund an endowment in San Francisco that in perpetuity provides 100,000 income to every family who's currently in poverty in San Francisco for, for forever at that scale. And he'd still have $30, $40 billion left over, you know, and- Have you talked to Larry about it? I mean, you're both graduates of Stanford University. I haven't had a chance to talk to him. How do you think he would respond to that? Well, I think there's I think there's a tendency, you know, among among the elite. And I I don't want to generalize about the elite because they're not all the same. But I think there's a common view that, uh, you know, that those kind of policies don't work or aren't, quote, the best use of of their resources. And I think there is a a tendency to to hoard wealth and in particular to invest in pet projects and pet priorities versus uh, actually addressing uh, systemic inequality very directly. And I think, you know, one of the things Dr. King emphasized about abolishing poverty is that, that the, you know, in many ways, the, you know, the easiest solution, you know, might be the most simple, you know, that we have all of these, you know, uh, welfare programs, supplemental income programs, all these things that people apply for get stuck in because they reach the limit, uh, you know, and that they can't, escape poverty, because if they accumulate a few thousand dollars, they no longer get the benefits necessary that would enable them to hang on to that wealth so they could continue building. So there's all this messiness in the system. And what I argue in the book is that there's really a much more straightforward, much more straightforward path. And when I bring up the Larry Page example, you know, it's not necessarily that I expect Larry to do that personally, but I want I want the 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 billionaire class to be aware that they have that power uh, if they choose to act in that way. And I want the public to be aware of that, that if individual actors aren't willing to do that, you know, let's build momentum and public pressure 
uh, that leads to that ultimately being the reality that trying to break this myth that, you know, poverty is natural or unavoidable uh, is really important to me. Do you think that the the liberal aristocracy are mostly hypocrites? We did a show on Davos Man last year, and the author was particularly critical of Mark Benioff, another multi-billionaire Bay Area person, local San Francisco person. I live here as well. That suggests that, that Benioff is essentially a hypocrite, that all these people talk the big talk when it comes to equality and racism and so on and so forth. But when it comes down to it, they're not really willing to give away their billions to fund, as you suggest, the kind of projects that might really confront the injustices in these countries. I do, I do think there's a lot of hypocrisy. I think there's no question about that. You know, that, for example, you know, Bill Gates for, you know, all the good he's done and how he's talked about uh, dwindling down his fortune. His fortune is still growing, you know, and there's there's people who are suffering and dying every single day that if he were to increase the payout rate of his endowment, there would be people who who live and survive and suffer less. You know, so there's a you know, there is an element of hypocrisy. And I at the same time, though, I think what's really important to me is I really try to get out of the notion that, uh, you know, that any one of us is good or bad, uh, that I think it, that every one of us, as I understand it, you know, there's ways that we're making the world better and ways that, you know, we're maybe complicit or contributing to, you know, some of the negative impacts on our society. And it may be different degrees and different scales and so but, forth. But that kind of relativism, Garrett, are you suggesting that there isn't much of a moral difference between Bill Gates and Donald Trump? I'm, I'm saying that, that everyone who's trying to do good has some degree of hypocrisy in them. And I think what I've seen on the right is this notion that unless you are giving up all of your wealth and power, you're a hypocrite. But the reality is, if someone gave up all of their wealth and power, they no longer would have an ability to influence. So they, it's a it can be used as a manipulative frame. Right. But it's also a critique. It's not just from the right, it's from the left. I mean, the Davos man author was was a progressive. You wrote an interesting piece, Garrett, in Fast Company. Um about the what the, the headline of the piece calls the dark side of liberal philanthropy. Is all philanthropy, um, Garrett, liberal? And is it sh should we move beyond the philanthropic foundations of America, the, the Dale Carnegie's through to the Bill Gates's? I think there's a lot of problematic characteristics of much of mainstream philanthropy and you know, in the same way that I don't want to generalize about rich white men or any other group, I don't want to. Well, you've written a book called Rich White Men. So you have, you're making it by definition. The title is a generalization. It's, I, I really don't think so. That it's, uh, I am speaking to the fact that there are many shared cultural characteristics and many beliefs that, that the majority of the rich white men I've interacted with demonstrate, exhibit. Uh, but it's not the case that rich white men are a monolith, just like it's not the case that any group is a monolith. So, you know, I could say the same thing for philanthropy, but I do think there are trends and, and general consistencies 
for much of philanthropy and that for the most part, philanthropy operates from a charity mindset, not a justice mindset. And, and what that means, as I understand it, is, is really a, a reflection of the noblesse oblige ideology from, from centuries ago, that it's really about the, you know, the fortunate helping the less fortunate. And whereas the reality is that, uh, that if we bring a power analysis to that conversation, what does it look like for the powerful to share power uh, so that those who are impacted by the current structure have a greater degree of agency over their lives. There's something strange about, you know, people, people who have been locked out of opportunity for centuries having to apply for a grant from the people who exploited their ancestors to, uh, you know, to have a shot at succeeding in this country. Garrett, are you suggesting that the the inequalities that you describe and confront as a what you call yourself a serial nonprofit entrepreneur that they're un-American? Is that the real problem with this? That America hasn't realized itself? You, you've you've mentioned uh, Martin Luther King a couple of times, a strong American nationalist who believed that America needed to sort of live up to its foundational myths or promises. Is this really an argument about what America can become, realizing the potential of the republic? I I really focus on America primarily because it's my home and it's the the only place I've I've lived for an extended period of time and and know well that this is the the my people, so to speak. Um, you know, I don't subscribe to an American exceptionalist notion. Uh, but I do think there, you know, that there are ways that America has, has contributed positively to uh, the progress of humanity and, and ways that the U.S. has contributed negatively. And so what does it look like for us to, you know, to do more of that good as a country and less of that harm, you know, is something that's really important to me. And I, I think America's always been a place where there's been a conflict between, you know, some degree of belief that, you know, oligarchy or plutocracy is is beneficial and, and a conflicting belief that, you know, that equal opportunity, uh, you know, justice, freedom for all is is beneficial. And that conflict, you know, has has been in play in this country from from the very beginning. We just happen to be at a point where uh, the elite are are quote winning in terms of a real extreme degree of wealth and power. Yeah. And I, I don't think anyone would disagree with that. And you're certainly not the first or the last person to make that observation. I wonder whether Garrett, what's missing or what we haven't really talked about, what you haven't articulated yet is a, is a political philosophy here. Where are you coming from? What is the foundation of your thinking? I did a show last month with a young English political philosopher, da Daniel Chandler. He has a new book out, Free and Equal. What, what would a, a fair society look like? And what Chandler does brilliantly, I think, is resurrect the ideas of John Rawls to suggest that Rawls still offers uh, a political philosophy which will confront a lot of the issues you talk about. Is there uh, a political philosopher, a political thinker, a political tradition that has really inspired you that we need to go back to? What books 
do you read? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And I think, you know, for me, I, I actually try to try to steer clear of, of a dogmatic viewpoint. I certainly have what many would describe as a leftist viewpoint, but I also, uh, you know, to our discussion about capitalism and socialism earlier, you know, I really try to look at the at the complexity of the issues and and really in particular. What so you're beyond that? I, I, I mean, that's the thing I'm struggling with. It. You see, you're against the dogmatic viewpoint, but we all have dogmatic viewpoints. And in fact, by by being against all forms of dogmatic viewpoints, that itself is a kind of dogma. You, you've got to you've got to link your thinking to a one kind of tradition or another. Otherwise, you're just you're just continually elusive you're just dodging the bullets here yeah it's that's fair i think i think maybe maybe if i were to lift up one lens it's it's the way uh way the way some folks talk about what does it mean to build a liberatory society and in, in particular what does it look like for us to pursue that liberation collectively you know so i'm thinking about scholars like bell hooks for example who you know, talks about how masculinity and patriarchy is is the ways that it's harmful for for women and and anyone who uh, is gender oppressed uh, in the country and in the world. But also, like, there's ways that patriarchy doesn't serve men optimally either. You know that uh, you may know that you know men have high suicide rates, and my understanding of of why that's the case is that men, you know, part of why that occurs is that men have a hard time uh, expressing their emotions. And there's kind of a bottling up that can lead to a, a powder keg type moment, you know, so that's not the only reason, but I think it's one of them. So we have instances where, you know, the existing system, even if it overall, it benefits a dominant group, it doesn't necessarily serve that group perfectly. And what does it look like to uh, imagine a society where uh, everyone is able to have their basic needs met, you know, and be their their true and authentic selves. And uh, that's a challenging aspiration. But I think if I were to, you know, kind of pick one lineage, it's probably in that liberatory frame. So the the, the liberatory frame of bell hooks that's that's your political philosophy. Like I said, I, I I don't I think it's a oversimplification to, you know, it's it's reductive I think to say that any one of us is the product of a single person's perspective, uh, but but she's certainly one of the ones who's influenced me. Let's end uh, on a note about technology. You wrote a piece for Wired back in 2017, suggesting that. Technology might be the raw material for fighting economic inequality. I'm talking to you from Silicon Valley, where, of course, and San Francisco, where the the inequalities are, are, are radically extreme. The, the Larry Pages and the, the armies of homeless on the streets. How can technology, Garrett, help this? Are you someone sympathetic to the Web3 crowd who believe in a, a distribute, distributory democracy where we do away with hierarchies? Is there hope in new technology, in blockchain, in, in, in cryptocurrency, maybe even in AI? It's, it's a really, it's a good question. And, uh, 
that article in Wired, I I'm not a fan of that headline that they chose. I think no one ever likes their headlines. When we write for these things, we get the headlines that that they give up. Otherwise, otherwise the editors don't have any value at all. But in any event, can can speak to your question that I think uh, I think technology is something that is you know that it can be something that drives progress you know or it can be something that further concentrates wealth and power and in some cases it can be both and you know in america for example you know uh, a lot of a high percentage of the population has broadband internet now like so there's a real democratizing element to what that offers but also it's still the case that a significant portion of the population millions of people don't have access to broadband internet, even in the United States, which is the richest country in the world. So there's this strange thing where, as I understand it, you know, technology has this wonderful power of being democratizing and empowering, but it also, the, the extent to which that it doesn't spread or it doesn't spread evenly actually exacerbates inequality, particularly if the, the ways the economic system is structured uh, like it is now where the ultra rich don't pay a lot of capital gains taxes that you see a a concentration in terms of who benefits from the technology being able to use it and also a concentration of who benefits financially from creating it. So it's it has big risks in terms of concentrating wealth and power in ways that lead to a lot of rent seeking and self-interested behavior. Uh, but at its best, it really can be quite democratized in ways that really help us move forward. So I'm not anti-technology or anti-innovation. It's just looking at looking at that technology in the context of society more widely. And is it actually driving progress for the whole? So let's end, Garrett, with a, going back to our friend uh, Larry Page. You mentioned if he gave away his $100 billion, um, things could change in America. If Larry's watching, he's probably spending his money. I'm sure he wouldn't waste his time watching you and I. But if he was, what would you say to him very briefly? Why should he give his money away? I, I, would say, I would say to him that making that kind of investment, you know, whether it's abolishing poverty or helping to make reparations happen or one of these big policies in America is a greater historical legacy you know, than anything he could ever do with his businesses. That I think that if he wants to be remembered as somebody who had a major impact centuries from now, taking on something like abolishing poverty, uh, frankly, is is bigger than Google, as big as Google is.